Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the message, Messages from Beyond the Stars. And, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not aware, the United States government has spent quite a bit of money over the last number of decades listening for messages from outer space. We have built large telescopes, radio uh, telescopes. We have built large collection dishes, some of them using natural terrain to try to catch the faintest signals from out of space. You know, we've also sent messages, by the way, capsules and other things in case there are other beings who learned, uh, to, who, who discover them and that they can learn more about us. Um, maybe they're hoping that they will find a message from outer space to to tell us something that's helpful. You know, my philosophy is we already have a message from outer space that has given us a good news. And uh, for thousands of years, this message has been beaming through God's Word. The unfortunate thing is that many people don't listen to it. Many people are not uh, tuning in to this book, God's Word, and uh, they aren't hearing the messages which God has prepared for them. I believe that God here has a message of hope for a, a, a lonely planet, you might say, a planet that is quickly, seemingly coming to an untimely end. I believe it's going to be a timely end. I always tell people there's good news. The world is going to end. <laughs> um, some people don't think that's good news, but I think it is because the prophecy says that a better world is coming, that Jesus' kingdom is going to be a kingdom that replaces all kingdoms and lasts forever. You know, the thing is that, that uh, humanity and God have not always been separated. There was a time when mankind could communicate with, with God and God could communicate with us face to face. Wouldn't that be wonderful? In fact, when we read in the, in the book of Genesis, we're going to see how, how God wanted to have a face to face fellowship with um, His people. Genesis 3 tells us how that that communication got interrupted. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God's perfect rule of love. And because of sin, they were separated from God. Sin and God are incompatible. Sin separates us from God. And that's what the Bible tells us, that sin and sin comes between us and our Maker. We find that the Bible says in Genesis 3 and verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Sorry. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so... Here they were accustomed to God coming in the cool of the day and speaking with them, but now they're wanting to hide from God. Why were they wanting to hide from God? The reason is because sin separates us from God. The prophet uh, Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, "...but your iniquities have separated you from your God." and your sins have hidden his face from you. So it's not that God doesn't still love mankind. Don't you agree with me? God still loves us today as much as he loved Adam and Eve. I believe that. The problem is that he can't, he can't uh, communicate with us face to face because of our sins. God wants to communicate with us, but our sins have separated us from him. And so God had to find another way to communicate with mankind. He had to find a way that was not face-to-face -face communication, 
he had to somehow still communicate his message of love, his love letter to planet Earth. And so he chose men and women he could trust to be his mouthpiece, to communicate his love and his plans to mankind. Among those he chose, we find in the Old Testament, uh, Moses and Miriam, Samuel and Elijah, Huldah, Deborah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many others. Prophets and prophetesses were God's way of saying, I have a message for you. I'm still concerned about you. I love you. I care for you. That was God's message. And the Bible records many conversations between the Lord and different Bible characters. But it wasn't the same as the conversations that he had in the, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Sometimes God spoke through the Holy Spirit, sometimes by holy angels, and at other times through people whom he chose to be his messengers. But the most frequent and the most common channel of communication which God has had with his people is the channel of prophets and prophetesses, men and women who communicated for God his message, men and women who spoke for God at the moving of the Holy Spirit. And Amos tells us this in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So God doesn't try to keep any secrets from us. Aren't you glad that God is not a God who just tries to keep everything good to himself? You know, um, there was one time I remember I was speaking in, I was speaking in uh, Bulgaria, and um, I made this statement. I said, God is not a capitalist. And all these people in this former Soviet you know, communist economy, their jaws sort of dropped, and, and they, they, uh, they weren't sure what I, where I was going with that, you know. Communism didn't do them so well, and, and, but then I had to follow that up. I had to say, you know, God is not a communist either. He's not a socialist either. My point in saying he's not a, a capitalist is that capitalism trades goods or information for what? money. I mean, that's the basic idea of capitalism, right? And I, by the way, I believe, in, I believe in property ownership and all of those things. I think they're biblical, okay? And many of these are biblical foundations which, which a, an ethical capitalism is built upon. But, but God isn't a capitalist, meaning he doesn't ask us to buy truth from him. He tries to give it away. He's trying to tell as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, the good news. And that's why the Bible says in Amos 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing, unless He reveals His secret to the servants, His servants, the prophets. Second um, Peter chapter 1, and verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, the prophecies that we see in these scriptures were not Daniel sitting down one day and saying, hey, you know, what can I do to, to have people read my new book that I want to publish? What can I do? What can I say? Maybe I'll have a vision. Did Daniel decide to have a vision or a dream? No, God chose him, didn't he? You know, the, the book of Daniel could be written the book of, could have been written the book of Shadrach or Meshach, right? Or Abednego. It could have been. God chose, they were all for praying, I believe, in that story. They were all praying, although Daniel seemed to have been the, the vocal person in Daniel chapter 1, asking for the special consideration of diet. But they were all praying. They were all seeking God's will. God chose Daniel 
to be a spokesperson, didn't he? And this is what the Bible is saying here. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In fact, this isn't just one or two people that God used. In Acts chapter uh, one, uh, 3 and verse 21, it says, God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. In fact, if we, if we look in the Old Testament, we find that the, the first prophet that, that, um, that's that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, I think he's mentioned in the New Testament, but the prophet Enoch prophesied, right? And Enoch was only the seventh generation down from Adam. And so this was very early on. God chose to give messages through his prophets. Now, there's not a book of Enoch in the Bible. In fact, there are a number of prophets, a lot of prophets, who don't have books in the Bible, but were prophets nonetheless. Did you realize that? Not every prophet wrote a canonical book. You have both, we have people like Nathan, Nathan was a prophet, right? Have you ever read the book of Nathan? Neither have I, because he didn't write one. Nathan was a prophet. Remember, he came before uh, David, and he said, you are, that, you are that man, right, in the parable of stealing the neighbor's sheep when he had a hundred of his own or a thousand of his own. Um, you are that man. Nathan was a prophet. We look at other people who are prophets. John the Baptist was a prophet, right? But there's, there's no book in the Bible written by John the Baptist, yet Jesus would say that no greater greater prophet has been born of woman than John the Baptist. So we notice that from the beginning of the world, the Bible says, um, God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets. Now, this is why we have the word of God to study today. Aren't you thankful that God has communicated through his prophets? Aren't you thankful that he's given these pages? Now, these are the writings that God somehow decided was go were, were going to be the most beneficial, not just in a local sphere of influence, local place in a certain time, but in a wider sphere for all time. And so the Bible's written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the earth have come. So God has spoken uh, by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Now, how do you know if God, if, if, if a person is a prophet? Since we don't just decide, well, I'm going to be a prophet. Daniel didn't decide, hey, which one of us is going to be the prophet here? No, God chose, right? So how do you know? Well, there came actually a, a little bit of a row between some of those whom God was using. You remember the family who was used very in significantly in the great exodus out of Egypt, uh, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now, Miriam had the gift of prophecy. She prophesied according to the scriptures. Um, Aaron was the priest. Moses was the one who was chosen by God after 40 years of learning or, and or unlearning in the wilderness, tending sheep, right? And uh, so Moses is the one who is the leader of God's people, but some, at some point, Miriam and Aaron got a little jealous of the influence that Moses had. You can read about it in, Roman, in Numbers chapter 12. And uh, listen, um, God had something to say to Aaron and to Miriam. He said, I've chosen Moses. In fact, this is, this is what he said, and I'm, I just put part of the uh, verse on a, on a screen here. It says, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a what? In a dream. So prophets, according to this verse, prophets are singularly chosen by God to communicate messages. And they don't just have messages that they're impressed with. Somehow they feel like, oh, this is what I think is true. No, God does something miraculous. God does something miraculous in giving that prophet a vision or a dream. Now you might ask the question, What's the difference between a vision and a dream? 
And the, the, the answer is, in a dream, you're asleep, and God gives you the message. It seems to be what happened with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 1, and Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, right? In a vision, however, we look on further in the book of Daniel, and he doesn't use the word dream, he uses the word vision. And there's a number of things that, that happen. It seems as though they're going about the activities of their daily life. He says, I was in the palace at Shushan by the river. You know, he's just going about the daily life, and, um, and I was taken in vision. And uh, there's a number of characteristics that we see in, in the Bible. We won't take time to go into all of these, but um, a prophet in a vision, Daniel repeatedly says, there was no breath left in me. There's no breath left in me. Very interesting. Um, there, there, there are miraculous, there are miraculous uh, characteristics, supernatural characteristics of a vision. And the reason is that God wants to let people around know that God is, that He is doing something, that He is giving that prophet a vision. Does that make sense? I mean, after all, let's suppose, and we're going to talk a little bit more about modern-day prophets when we get, as we go along, but let's suppose someone in this room were to say, I have the gift of prophecy. Uh, I, uh, God speaks to me directly. Now, um, well, there's going to be a couple of tests to see, but one of the evidences that that, uh, that you do have the gift of prophecy, assuming that you fit the other tests, is right here on the screen. God actually speaks to you in visions and dreams. Now, dreams are hard to verify. I could say I dreamed anything, but a vision isn't hard to verify because of the way God in public might give a vision. It's interesting, this passage goes on and he says, not so with my servant Moses. I speak to him face to face because he had that relationship with God. Moses was not an ordinary prophet, friends. Uh, Moses was someone who had a, a, a singular relationship with God from the burning bush and to Mount Sinai. Moses had a significant um, experience with God. The Bible is the product of these, the ministry of these prophets. And so all the authors of the New Testament, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and James and Peter and Jude, they all were part of that plan. They all, you could say, have the or had the gift of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that a certain prophet, once you have the gift of prophecy, that you're infallible, that everything you do, that your groceries you buy, none of them are rotten, and everything you do is just perfect? Is that what it means? No, it doesn't even mean that everything you say. In fact, we can look in the Bible and see examples of people who were prophets who gave messages that weren't God's message. But this is the thing. When they made a mistake, God sent them back and said, told them to correct it. You remember the story of, G of David when he wanted to build the temple? And Nathan the prophet said, sure, go ahead. Well, that wasn't what God's will was. And so God stopped Nathan and said, no, you need to go back and tell him it's not for him to build the temple. He can prepare, but it's his son that will build the temple. So the neat thing about a prophet is not that they have the infallibility of God himself. The neat thing about the prophet is that when they speak something that's of spiritual significance, if it were to be wrong, God would correct it. And that's why when we have the, the New Testament books, they harmonize, they agree, because God God um, is a God who was inspiring these prophets. That doesn't mean that every single detail of every story is going to be exactly the same. You know, the, you know that one gospel writer says that there were two demoniacs, and another gospel writer says there was one demoniac. And some people have criticized the scriptures and said, well, the Bible can't be true because there couldn't have been one and been two. It couldn't have... Well, I have an explanation for that. I think one of the gospel writers turned around first and took off running. 
and didn't see the second one when he came over. And his story was that that was... Um, actually, Mark probably wasn't even there, so um, he's, he's, he's hearing it from someone else. But does it matter? This is what's important. Does it matter? Does it matter whether there's one or two? Listen, the story doesn't fall or rise on the fact that there was one or two or, or ten. The story is that Jesus cast the demons out, and he was conqueror, right? And it's not going to affect our salvation if there's one or if there were two, see? And so if it had been something that was very important, because I believe all the Gospels are inspired, God would have corrected it and made sure that we have that in good form for us today. There were others during the New Testament times who had the gift of prophecy as well. Simon, Agabus, Barnabas, Anna, the deacon Philip. We talked about him the other day. Um, Philip had four daughters which prophesied. All were instruments God used to reveal His will and to encourage the early Christian church. Of course, the greatest revelation of God's love for mankind came through Jesus, didn't it? I mean, the greatest communication of what God is like and what His message is and how we ought to live, the demonstration of who God is. Never has the world witnessed a more eloquent communicator of God's love or concern. But yet, even though Jesus was the most eloquent, even though, would you agree Jesus was more than a prophet? <laughs> I mean, he was, he was the Son of God, friends. He was the eternal Son of God. He was the one who was in the beginning with God, and He was God. All things are made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And yet, people still rejected it. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine a perfect communicator coming with a perfect message? God Himself and yet people still rejected. Does that make you wonder? Does it make you wonder sometimes how, how it might be easy for you and me to reject truth too? I mean, really, Jesus Himself came. The great communicator, the great Savior, the Redeemer, He never made a mistake. He never acted selfishly. He never spoke out of turn, and yet people still rejected His message. I, it tells me, friends, that you and I need to make sure our hearts are open before the Holy Spirit, that He can show us and make sure that we don't reject the truth. If the people in Jesus' day would reject it from Jesus Himself, how much more maybe likely might we be 2,000 years later to reject it from lesser messages, messengers or from from not studying it for ourselves in God's Word. So when Jesus returned to heaven, um, after being rejected by mankind, um, what then? What happened to the gift of prophecy after Christ returned to heaven and all of His disciples died? Why don't we see a continuing progression of, of the gift of prophecies? I mean, why aren't the books of the Bible still being written? Why, aren't, why didn't we see, you know apostles throughout the Middle Ages still writing in harmony with the rest of God's Word. Why did this happen? Well, the, the short answer is that generations passed by until the church became careless and compromising and unfaithful to God and His Word. I think we've, we've sort of seen that as we looked at history in this seminar, haven't we? That some of the teachings of God's Word got lost sight of, didn't they? And when you lose sight of God's Word, you, you put yourself in a dangerous position. You, you separate yourself from God because it's, it's, like, it's sort of like God saying, look, if you won't listen to what I've already told you, why would I tell you more? 
Doesn't that make sense? I mean, why would God continue to send messengers and, and messages if God's people are unmindful and unheedful of the messages that He's already given? And so, um, the Bible is, is pretty clear, friends, that He did want those gifts to still be in the church. Um, the gifts that He wanted to still be in the church, we find in, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, wherefore He said, when He ascended upon high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. I want you to take your Bibles. I want to look at a couple of passages here that we can, so we can see what those gifts were. First of all, look with me there at Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me and we'll see the, the rest of this passage. He, when He ascended upon high, so that's when He left His church behind, He led captivity captive and He gave gifts unto men. Now, what were those gifts that he gave unto men. We'll start reading in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And this is what the Bible says. And he says, he gave some, what? Apostles, and some, what? Prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, why did he give them? Verse 12 says, says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, what was the goal of giving them? I think we can agree from verse 12 that we still need that, right? The work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. And this is, this is how long he would give it for and, or until. Verse 13, "...till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." Let me ask a question. Are we there yet? No. So, to me, it makes sense reading this Bible passage that the gifts which God gave, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some teachers, some past, uh, pastors and teachers. Um, he, gave them, he gave these gifts for the perfecting of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning cra craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But, he says, verse 15, speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So the whole point of all of these gifts, whether it's the gift of apostleship, whether it's the gift of prophecy, whether it's the gift of evangelism, the gift of, of pastoral care or of teaching, the, the point of the gifts is to help us to become more like Jesus Christ, to point our eyes to our Savior. I want us to be very clear there when we see these gifts, those gifts were not meant to elevate the person that received the gift. The, those gifts were meant to elevate Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's the, that's the goal. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Second passage here. We're going to read about the gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and uh, we'll begin reading with verse 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28, and we're going to see what Paul says to those in Corinth about the gift. And by the way, well, we won't get into that. It's, this is a fascinating passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14. 12 is speaking about gifts. 14 is speaking particularly about one of the gifts, the gift of tongues and how it was being used in the Corinthian church. And chapter 13, what do we know chapter 13 has? The love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13. It's sandwiched right between these two discussions of gifts. And um, there's a reason for that. We're, we're, let's read verse 28. And God has set some in the church, first what? 
apostles. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healings. Helps, governments, diversity of tongues. Are all apostles? He's asking a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. We don't all have the same gifts. We have to respect each other with the gifts that they have and that we have. Have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. It seems as though some in Corinth had had come to say, well, I have this gift, I have that gift, I'm doing this for the church, I think you should be doing this for the church, I think that's the way everyone should be, and that's the way it tends to be, isn't it? When we don't understand spiritual gifts, we tend to think that everyone else should do the way, do things we do, that they should be the same as we are. And spiritual gifts tells us, no, you're given different gifts, right? And what's the most, what's even more important than how well you do your gift or well, how many gifts you have? What's even more important? Though we speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, agape love, that's unconditional love we've become just an annoyance, a sounding gong or a tinkling cymbal, right? We're just a nuisance. And so right here in, this, in the middle of this discussion of gifts, Paul, Paul says, look, this is only important. It's only, it's only relevant as we understand the character of God, who is a God of love. And these gifts are given to us to show God's character of love to others, to reveal Him, to uplift Him. It's certainly not to uplift us. And um, we asked the question earlier, why did the Christian church start to not have as many manifestations of some of these gifts? And one of the answers we could find in Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9, this is God's answer, it's not mine, but notice what it says here, the law is no more and her prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. Do you think that maybe when we forget what God has already told us, He stops to give us more messages? I believe that's what we see happening in church, in church history. As the early church adopted pagan rites and practices and discarded fundamental truths of the Bible, probably not always intentionally, but simply drifted, drifting away from them, one by one, the spiritual gifts that God gave to the church were withheld. Um, during the time of the church's apostasy, sometimes we call them the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, Bibles were chained to monastery walls. In general, they were written in, in, in ancient languages such as the Hebrew and the Greek and, and the educated language of the day, which was Latin. But normal people, common people, if they could read at all, they couldn't read those languages. And so people didn't have the Bible. In fact, the Bible was forbidden. People could not have the Bible. And if they did have the Bible, and if they were caught with a Bible or even a portion of the Bible, they would often suffer, a, they would often suffer for it, even giving their lives to have the, uh, a portion of the Scriptures. Um, one of my favorite parts of, of uh, church history is is the story of the Waldenses. The Waldenses were a people who lived up in northern Italy in the Piedmont Valleys between Italy and France today. 
But in those days, it was, it, it, it's, that territory switched hands frequently from the French to the Italians to the Duke of Savoy or the House of Savoy. And, and the Waldensian people, very interestingly enough, they had early obtained a copy of the scriptures in their own language, in the uh, mountain language, you might say. And um, they guarded this very preciously. Um, in fact, there were, there's evidence that, that the, uh, that part of Italy they never completely came under the influence of the Bishop of Rome who was trying to have everyone sort of uniform in their beliefs and practices. The Waldensians, for example, they refused to go to Mass and confess their sins to a priest. And um, they, would be, they would be given an ultimatum. Either you go to Mass and confess your sins on this day or you're going to be exterminated. And huge, huge armies of, of tens of thousands. Um, and this extended all the way up into the into the 1700s, I mean, from, from about 1200 to about 1700, 500, almost 600 years, they resisted. Um, tens of thousands of armies would come marching into their valleys, and over and over, most of the time, God protected them through a, a fog that came, through snow that came. There's so many stories, and you can still go in those valleys and see the way they lived and the trails they had through the mountains and the the, the stone houses that are still out there in the countryside. It's just an incredible place. But um, one of the things that they did is they taught people to memorize the Bible. Because when they left their, their, the protection of their valleys, they couldn't take a Bible with them. But if it was in their head, they could. And they would actually train young people to go out as missionaries. Well, you couldn't just go around and knock on doors and say, hey, I'm a Waldensian missionary. Um, because you wouldn't get to very many doors. And so they would train them to be peddlers. They'd go and sell, you know, copperware or, or whatever goods they could sell, and, and they'd make their living as they were doing that. But when they found someone, they could sort of turn the conversation towards spiritual things, and they found that they might be interested in, in the truth of God's Word. They could always just write out some verses of John chapter 3 or, or Matthew chapter 7 or whatever it was because they'd memorized it. And um, even still... For 600 years, the Waldensians trained and sent out people all over Europe. 50% of them never returned alive. They were captured, they were caught, spreading God's word, which was illegal. Friends of mine tonight, would you do it if it was illegal? Would you do it if it was going to cost your life? It's an amazing sacrifice that these people went through. Only priests were allowed to read and interpret the Bible, and uh, a few Christians remained, remained uh, faithful despite the persecution. They planted the seeds of the Reformation long before Wycliffe and Luther and Huss and Jerome. Martin Luther and, and John Calvin, when, when they came and the, the magisterial Reformation began, they translated the Bible into the German language, into the French language. This caused a greater desire for God's Word, and people began to diligently study the Scriptures, and a great awakening uh, resulted. Um, about this time, there came into being a new religious movement, a group of dedita dedicated Christians who arose in, within the, the Reformation, who were from all different types of religious backgrounds, some Methodists, some Baptists, some Presbyterians. Others, were, they were searching the Scriptures and praying for light. And 
as they did, they read the book of Revelation and saw the description of God's last day people. And how does Revelation describe God's last day people? It describes them as, as keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus. Remember, Revelation 14, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of of Jesus. And what we see happening is a group of people began to explore the uh, teachings of the Old Testament scriptures and the sanctuary message, and they began to understand that God had a message still today speaking to us from God's Word. God's last day people would be keeping the commandments, and they started to understand what those commandments meant. And um, they were impressed that this involved keeping the Bible Sabbath. And they accepted this memorial of creation and proclaimed the Sabbath truth to the world. Now, you might think that having revived an understanding of, of keeping the law, remember what Lamentation said? They've, they, they've forgotten the law and the prophets aren't speaking. You might think that there might be also revival of the gift of prophecy. Wouldn't it be reasonable to expect that God might have something special to say to this generation? Notice what it says in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 31. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now, what's the great and terrible day of the Lord? We've read about it in, in, in uh, Revelation. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 6. The, the great day of His wrath has come. It's the second coming, right? So before the second coming, there's going to be an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Isn't that what the Bible says? And, and uh, He says the Spirit's going to speak, and your young men will see visions, and, and uh, your older men shall dream dreams. Um, so this is, a, this is a promise that God said would happen. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God's will is that His last day people would have all of the gifts, not be lacking any of the gifts. That's what He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. Now remember, Revelation describes God's last day people as, as having this gift as well. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And the dragon was angry or wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, mm -hmm. which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, I want you to just look with me in the book of Revelation chapter 12 right now. I want us to look more clear, carefully at this prophecy. Because I remember the other night when we were talking about the true and un, undeniable certain identification of the Antichrist, and we looked in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn power, and it would reign for time, times, and the dividing of times, three and a half years. And um, I told you that this time prophecy is found no less than six times in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And um, we, in fact, discover that, that um, this is one of those places. In fact, Dan Revelation chapter 12 has two of those times listed. listed. Um, notice with me, we'll, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll, just, uh, we'll be looking at this a little more tomorrow, so I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 17 describe two women in the book of Revelation, and a woman in, Reve in, in Bible prophecy symbolizes a church, a religious movement. And we'll, we'll be looking at that more, but notice with me a couple things here. Um, 
This is, this is the dragon trying to destroy the woman, and she brought forth, verse 5, a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Who is that talking about? Jesus is the one who's to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and Jesus is the one caught up to God and His throne. And sometime after that, it says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. In other words, we've talked about how the little horn arose and it lasted for 1260 years. Remember that? The uh, 538, the last of those three horns was uprooted in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, 538, 1260 comes right right down to 1798. 1798, we saw precisely that time was, it's not a coincidence, friends. Napoleon's general, Berthier, marches right into the Vatican. France has declared that there is no God. There's no God but reason. And the church is, they're going to prove it by doing away with the church. And so they take the Pope captive. He dies in captivity. The, the church is no longer, according to France, God is no longer, according to France. Remarkable fulfillment of that 1260-year prophecy. That was, that, was, that was what was happening with the Christian church at large. But God still had a people, friends, who, represented by this woman of Revelation 12, had fled into the wilderness. They were in hiding. They were in cover. They were like a secret church during this time, 1260 years. Skip with me down. Again, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. You see that? Time, times, and half a time. Once again, the exact same from Daniel chapter 7. Exact same language used. Three and a half years. We understand that to mean the serpent cast out of his mouth waters a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. The earth helped the woman and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So in the, during this 1260-year period, God's people were sort of in hiding. They were in the wilderness, according to this prophecy. But afterwards, there's a remnant. There's, there's the, what's left, right? And the devil is angry at that. And what is, what is the description? They keep the commandments of God, and they what? Have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if we could just summarize here, we can notice what the book of Revelation is teaching us, and we'll, we'll look more into this um, tomorrow night. But the, the people of God will have the faith of Jesus, they will keep all of God's commandments, and they will have the gift of prophecy. Let's look at this more closely. Let's see why we believe they will also have the gift of prophecy. Revelation twelve seventeen. the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, look with me in your Bibles. That's Revelation twelve seventeen. God's last day people keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Look with me at two verses. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Um, tells us what the testimony of Jesus Christ is. This is neat how the Bible explains itself, and I'm going to show you how it's even, it's even more clear when we look at the second verse. Revelation 19, verse 10, it says, I, I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, this is the picture. This is what's going on. I have to back up because this is going to help you understand what, what's going on. Um, 
Daniel, or not Daniel, John here, the prophet, right, is receiving a message. And in the books of Daniel and Revelation, there was a messenger, an angel, who often came and gave the message, right? In, the, in Daniel, he's identified as Gabriel. Um, I would tend to believe it's the same, mess, the same messenger or angel in the book of Revelation that gives John the gift of prophecy. In fact, we can even look in the first verses of the book of Revelation. It says, God gives it to Jesus, and Jesus gives it to his angel, and the angel gives it to the prophet. Um, that's the sequence. That's the way the, the prophecy came. So the angel is talking to John, and John is so overwhelmed with this good news of, of there are going to be people who, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by our own righteousness, are going to be able to be attendees at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine being at the Lamb's wedding? Can you imagine being invited to the wedding of Jesus Christ? And you're one of the guests, right? I mean, and John's like, whoa, are you serious? And he falls at the angel's feet to worship him. You see the picture? You understand what's going on? He says, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see that you do it not. Why does he say? I am your what? Fellow servant and of your, what does he say? Brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Very interesting. God's last day people are going to have what? Testament of Jesus. The angel tells John, I am, a, I am of your fellow brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. I'm just the messenger. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. Worship God. Don't fall at my feet. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the, what does it say? The spirit of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. And so what, what John is here hearing is, look, uh, you're a prophet. We're, we, you and I, the angel and I, uh, the angel and John, if I can get my persons straight here in the story, John is hearing that the prophet, he the prophet, and the angel who is giving him the prophecy, they both share something in common, right? They both have been given the gift of prophecy. And so this is why the angel says, don't worship. Now, look with me one other verse, Revelation 22 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 9, and the exact same thing is happening again, except he uses a little different words, and this gives it a little bit more clear. So in, in Revelation 19.10, he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice with me what he says in Revelation 22.9. Once again, John is uh, overwhelmed when he, sees, he, has, he, he hears this message. And by the way, what overwhelmed him was when he got the message that Jesus is coming again quickly. And he, he fell at his feet to worship the angel, and John hears the same words. See thou do it not, verse 9, for I am thy breath, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the what does he say? Prophets. Prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. So almost the exact same language is shared with John one more time. Now this is what I'm going to, I'm going to um, suggest that we can conclude from this. The testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, is the gift that prophets have had from the very beginning. Notice with me what it says. Revelation 19.10 says, I am thy, of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 22, it's not 6, it's verse 9, I'm sorry, says, I am of thy brethren the what? Prophets. So who has the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. The prophets, right? 
And so this is an enduring gift that, that John is told, not only have the prophets of the Old Testament had this gift, you, John, have this gift. The angel says, I have this gift. But he's also told that God's last day people will have the gift of prophecy. God's last day people, Revelation 12, 17 said, would have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this shouldn't surprise us that God still has a message for these last days. Um, in fact, if you remember, we won't turn there now, but remember we had a study on Matthew chapter 24, and one of the most common prevailing counsels or admonitions that Jesus gives in Matthew 24 is beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Now this is talking about the last days, right? Matthew 24, the last days. Beware of false prophets. Now this is very simple. If there were to be no prophets, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus just to say, beware of prophets, right? Then you wouldn't have to ask the question, are they true prophets or are they not true prophets? But the reality is that God expected they're still to have the gift of prophecy. In fact, he knew this would be a particular, a particular identifying characteristic of God's last day church. And so he knew that they would have the gift of prophecy in their midst. So what they needed to be aware of was not prophets, but they needed to be aware of false prophets. And I want to tell you, friends, today, as I talk to people, most Christians, many Christians, they aren't being aware or beware of false prophets. They're just afraid of prophets, period. They're just afraid of anyone who says that this might be a message from God. First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, Look with me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. This is a, a series of very short summary statements which Paul makes as he's writing those in Thessalonica and, and trying to give them counsel. He says, Rejoice every more, evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Notice with me verse 19. It says, quench not the spirit, verse 20, despise not, what does it say? Prophesying. But the next verse says what? Prove all things, and then what? Hold fast to that which is good. So we ought to test, don't you think? We ought to prove. We can't just accept everything that comes to us and say, oh, it must be true because it sounded right. It sounded nice. He had a nice smile on his face when he said it. Does that make it true? It doesn't make it true at all. We have to test it by God's word, don't we? We have to decide. Don't despise prophesying, but prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. By the way, I, this, this is a little bit off the subject, but it's one of the discoveries of my lifetime that the Holy Spirit has, has shown me, and I'm not a prophet, by the way, but um, one of these discoveries that has really impacted my life. The Bible says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. It does not say, prove all things, hold fast to that which you can't disprove. Do you realize there's sometimes a difference? I have people come to me with all kinds of ideas. Well, they tell me, you can't prove that it's wrong. And I have to agree. There's no verse in the Bible that says that idea is wrong. But that's not my burden. You understand? The burden of proof is not on me to prove that it's wrong. The burden of proof is on you to show me that it's right. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, right? That's what, that's what we, if it's not clear in God's word, we don't need to follow it. Does this make sense? 
There's so many ideas out there that are, that are sort of a little bit, they have elements of truth in it, and, they're, and you can't really pin it down and say this is wrong. But the Bible says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. And so my motto has been, look, I can't, I can't necessarily prove it wrong. That doesn't mean it's true. I have to be able to prove it true to know that it's something I should follow. And so God wants us to test the prophets, the messenger, messages of the prophets, to see if, these, if they are bringing a message from God. Let's look at a couple of tests of a true prophet, all right? If you have your Bibles, let's look at these verses rather quickly. Um, we don't have much time. A true prophet of God, first of all, will speak in harmony with God's Word. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. This, is, this may be one of the easiest and, and most logical and most obvious, but sometimes people don't think about it. A prophet will speak in harmony with God's Word. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. This is what it says. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this Word, it is because there is how much light in them? No light in them. So we test a prophet according to the Word of God. I want to tell you something very, 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 very important tonight. There is no way that God is ever going to send a prophet who disagrees with what He's already told us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The way Paul says this in 1 Corinthians um, what is it, 14 verse 32 or so? He says, even the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, we can't say things that are in disharmony with what the prophets have already said. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Isaiah 8 verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9, speaking of predictions coming to pass. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. And this is what um, the prophet says here. Um, Verse 9, are you there? Say amen. All right, the prophet which prophesies peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has truly sent him. So what does it say? Predictions should be fulfilled, right? A prophet shouldn't be like, like um, Hal Lindsey with about a 5% accuracy rate, right? If a prophet makes a prediction, it should come to pass. That's what the Bible says. It's pretty clear. And um, now we understand that, that there are also those prophecies where, where God is, is clear that it's conditional, right? You remember Jonah? He was upset because he said Jonah, uh, Nineveh is going to be destroyed and, and it wasn't destroyed. Well, God had already said, look, if I ever speak and I prophesy against this city because of its wickedness, if it turns from its wickedness, it'll live, right? We already know that's what God's purpose is. So there are conditional prophecies where, 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 where that, that outcome is based upon our decision, and if our decision changes, the outcome changes. But as far as predictions made, um, the Bible says here, unconditional predictions should come to pass. And a third, uh, that it should edify the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. I think this is important, friends, because we, I believe, are living in the last days. And I believe these are just the days where Jesus said we should beware of false prophets. So we ought to know if we have an opportunity to test how to test a prophet or someone who says they have a message from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 
verses 3 and 4. But he that prophesies um, speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaks in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Um, and we don't have time to get into this whole story in 1 Corinthians 14, but and you imagine if I was up here speaking in Russian and none of you spoke Russian, it might edify me, but it wouldn't edify you, would it? <laughs> um, but the gift of prophecy, on the other hand, is given for the edification of all. Everyone can benefit from the teaching, from the, from the work of the prophet. Number four, um, the, the prophet of God exalts Christ, the Son of God. First John chapter 4 skip over there a few books to 1 John chapter 4 near the book of Revelation the epistle of first epistle of the disciple John 1 John chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 it says beloved believe not every spirit but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world hereby know ye the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And he goes on, he says, if they don't, they're not of God, they're the spirit of the Antichrist. So a prophet, a true prophet, will point us to Jesus. Don't you think that's obvious? If that's the work of all of the gifts of the church, all of the gifts of, of the spirit, then it obviously has to be the gift uh, or the work of the gift of prophecy as well. Number five, a true prophet of God bears good fruit. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16 and 18. Matthew chapter 7, and this is our last of the five tests. I've seen longer lists, I've seen shorter lists, but this is uh, good enough for us to know whether someone is coming with a message from God or not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 and verse 18. And uh, this is what Jesus says, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And so Jesus here is saying, look, you can know them by their fruits. This is the only test of a prophet. I mean, if that was the case, you know, someone who says, I'm a prophet, they could just go out and do some good deeds and people could say, wow, he's a prophet because he has good fruit. You know, he feeds the hungry, clothes the, clothes the naked and the good fruit, good, good deeds, good works. There's a whole list of tests, aren't there? They first of all have to speak according to God's word. They have to agree with the rest of the prophets. They have to uplift Jesus Christ. They have to bear good fruit. This is only one of those tests. And so we find that based on these texts, it's obvious that not everyone who professes to be a prophet of God is a true prophet. No matter who claims to speak for God, apply the tests and see if they match. If they fit, thank God. If they don't, follow Christ's warning to watch out for them. Now, let me tell you a story, share with you a story of how God chose to keep in touch with His people. It was during that great religious awakening early in the 19th century. You remember that when would, when would that time of persecution when the church fled into the wilderness, when would that have come to an end? The time times, the dividing of time, 1260 years, 1798. So this wasn't long after that. There was a what we call the Second Great Awakening, and out of the great second, second Great Awakening of the 19th century, there was a tremendous interest in Bible study and prayer. I have a fascination with this because I enjoy prophecy, and this is when the study of prophecy exploded. And by the way, the book of Daniel, 
Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 tells us the book of Daniel is to be unsealed in the time of the end. And so I believe the reason why you have this explosion in the study of prophecy soon after 1798 is because the book of Daniel was now open. The Holy Spirit was inspiring people to understand it. And um, they continued to uh, study the prophecies. Eventually, those who were studying the prophecies came to the conclusion that Jesus would come in their day. They believed that Jesus was coming soon. When they studied the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, they came to the conclusion that Jesus was coming in the near future. In fact, it wasn't a conclusion that others, others had come close to this. Martin Luther himself in 1530s had said he believed from his study of prophecy that Jesus would come in about 300 years. Very interesting. Evidently, that was from the same prophecies that Martin Luther was studying. But in the 1830s and the 1840s, um, men and women were studying these prophecies, and they eventually settled on a, on a time for Jesus to come. They believed that Jesus was actually going to come at a certain time. They, uh, they, we might ask the question today, why would they think Jesus was going to come at a certain time when Jesus says, the day and the hour no one knows, only the Father in heaven. Um, I think that they, they just sort of went around that verse by saying, well, no one knew then, but now we do know, and now we have discovered. And they were sure that Jesus was going to come in, um, in 1844. October 22 passed, however, and the glorious return of Jesus did not come it did not take place. It was a very bitter disappointment. In, in America, there was about 100,000 or more who, in a fairly small country, it was a large group of people from every denomination who were anticipating Christ's return in, in 1844. Many prominent ministers, um, theologians were a part of them, as well as, as common people. Um, it was a most bitter disappointment when, when he didn't come, and people ridiculed them. They made fun of them. They... Uh, they, they scoffed and laughed and misrepresented. And after further Bible study, the group of people discovered they, they, they became convicted that the date was correct, but the, the event was wrong. And um, they began to believe that what had actually happened was not Jesus coming to judge the earth with fire, which will happen later, but He was beginning the work of judgment. Remember we talked about judgment, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur? Rosh Hashanah, remember that lecture we talked about from Daniel chapter 7? Just before Jesus comes, there's a time of judgment. They concluded that the judgment would begin. They had thought that the sanctuary mission in Daniel 8.14 was the earth, but in this they were mistaken. Instead of the earth being cleansed by fire, the sanctuary was to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And this involved the final demonstration of God's character of love through His people. Uh, excitedly, the, the believers continued to study and, and began to, to find more truths that had been forgotten for centuries. At this crucial moment, God chose to restore, in one instance at least, the gift of prophecy to His people. In fact, He chose a, fa a frail 17-year-old girl who gave her a, a vision, He gave her a vision of God's love and the triumph of God's love. Um, she was given, Ellen Harmon was given this vision in, in 1844, just a few weeks after the Great Disappointment. And this is what was going on in many of the people who had been studying the prophecies and had been looking forward to Jesus', my, uh, Jesus return. Many of them had decided that they were all just wrong, that it was all just a big delusion, and they were going to leave. They were going to forget about it. Some of them were going to leave God completely. They were just so disillusioned. And this vision... Which, which Ellen Harmon received, she was in a prayer meeting with some other ladies around, and um, 
she she had she had just she just was just learning she's a very shy person just learning to pray in public herself and she she's in this prayer meeting she has this vision and and she's taken away and she sees the world it's like she sees the whole world and she was looking for god's people in the world but they weren't anywhere to be found they weren't they weren't there at all the people that she knew that had been a part of this whole bible study and prayer and and looking forward to the second coming she couldn't see any of them and the angel who was her guide said look a little higher and she looked higher and there was a trail above the world and there she saw god's people traveling on a trail and what was especially encouraging was there was a, a bright light shining behind them the angel told her was the experience they'd just gone through and in front of them there was jesus and he was leading them towards the promised land now when she came out of vision she knew exactly what this meant she knew exactly that they were to not to be rejecting the message of prophecy that had brought them into an understanding of the second coming and and God's word and the prophecies, but somehow that was a light shining behind them. And yet virtually every single person she knew, she was positively convinced would reject that message. And she did not want to give it. She said, I, I don't want to give that message at all. Um, she, she, uh, she even went to, her parents were going to have a Bible study at their house, and to avoid having to t see these people and, and maybe have to share this, she actually traveled some miles away in the middle of winter, it's December, and this was in New England, and um, she travels miles away to a relative's house to try to avoid sharing this message. She didn't want to share it at all, and yet eventually she did, and um, she continued to share her message as God gave her messages. She had uh, around 2,000 visions during the time of her ministry. And when I say a vision, it's, as I said, it's different than a dream. The Bible describes it as Daniel says, I was, there's no breath left in me. And the reason, I think, that God gave so many public visions to Ellen Harmon, who later married James White, became Ellen White. The reason she had so many public visions was to help people have faith that God really was working. And some people were skeptics. You can imagine, right? I'd be a skeptic too. Some people were skeptics. There were people who said, it can't be. She has to be breathing. Some of her visions would last for hours. She has to breathe. And doctors would be called in and they would examine her. They put a mirror in front of her, her face. They would even, at one point, they tried, they, they covered her her mouth for extended period of time, mouth and nose. They put a candle in front of her. Sometimes she was even talking. And they had to leave saying, we don't know what's happening here, but it's supernatural. There's something happening here. The question is, not is there something supernatural happening, but does her message, did her message point people to God's word? Did it point people to Jesus? Did it, did it speak in harmony with God's word? And I've, as a person who has studied her life and her writings uh, extensively, I believe that it has. Um, this is what she said, for example, little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to me lead men and women to the greater light. Over and over she said, don't follow me, follow the Bible. There's no, 
there's no excuse for anyone. Some people have said that she tried to, tried to come up with doctrine herself. Listen, over and over and over, if you, if you actually read her writings, not just what people might criticize her for being, if you actually read her writings, she says, look, study the Bible. The Bible and the Bible only is to be our standard for doctrine and practice. Sola Scriptura. She was, she was very strong in her support for that, champ, that doctrine of the Reformation. She championed the Holy Scriptures as the final court of appeal in all doctrinal decisions. To those who are criticizing the Word of God, she said, look, cling to your Bible as it reads and stop criticism, stop your criticism in regard to its validity and obey the Word and you will not, one of you, and not one of you will be lost. Obey the what? Obey the Word. Study your Bibles. Don't, 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 uh, don't follow... Um, messages of anyone instead of the Bible. Follow your Bibles. And so um, Ellen Harmon's ministry began. It's very interesting that she, um, she shrank from that first vision. This is what she said. After I had the vision and God gave me light, I, He bade me deliver it, but I shrank from it. I was young and thought they would not receive me. Um, she began sharing that vision. That encouraged the people to continue studying. And um, out of that, they began to understand more of the sanctuary message. They began to understand more of how God's sanctuary, the Old Testament, points forward to the real plan of salvation in, in our experience and how it explains, help us, helps us to explain the prophecies. Well, she would continue to write, and much of her writings are on two areas, um, the areas of, of course, of spiritual things, but also of health and education. Health and education occupied a lot of her time, and it, um, I don't have time to go into a lot of her um, predictions or writings here tonight, but um, I just want to share with you a couple of things. I could, I, could, I could share with you many, but this is one of the things she wrote in 1864. Tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. She says, it is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are so slow and scarcely perceivable. And you have to understand, this was a time in which doctors were prescribing smoking for respiratory ailments. It was actually thought to be beneficial or good for you. And um, in 1864, she says, no, it's, it's a poison. It's, it has a slow, insidious way of, of killing us, basically. It's dangerous. And it would be not until uh, 1957 that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. Um, this is just one example. If you look on the areas of diet, um, her writings are far and above. You, some of you are familiar with the, Dr. T. Colin Campbell, the author of the China, China Study. He read one of her books recently called Councils on Diet and Foods. He read it, and he said he had one question afterwards. Where has this, been, the, where has this book been? For the last hundred years since it was published because he said over and over and over the idea of of uh, a simple whole foods plant-based diet being healthy for us that's what science has proven and that's what she said over a hundred years ago and so just some examples and and we see evidences of how it's working here's frank Shearer. he's water skiing um he got a lot of publicity here a couple of years ago when he was going water skiing he was a hundred years old when this picture was taken and um, he's one of those centenarians who was researched and of great interest to scientists as they're trying to understand why do some people live so much longer? Some of you may have read The Blue Zones or some of the sequels to The Blue Zones. Um, I've, read, uh, uh, I have, I've read 
some of this book. I haven't read all of it, uh, but I have several of Dan Buettner's books. Um, why, what they discovered was people who followed the principles that had been written 100 years ago, or over 100 years ago, were living longer. Well, you think that might be because you think it might be because they were the right principles? Maybe because God knows how our bodies are built. Here he is water skiing at 100. Um, here's the National Geographic article on longevity. Um, again, from some of the same studies that Dan Buettner was writing about, they looked at, at a, a number of different places in the world where people live longer than the average population. What's interesting was they looked at, at, at um, Sardinia and, and a number of different places around the world where people live longer. The average, a, average extra life expectancy in most of those cases was only three or four years. One of those locations was Loma Linda, California, which has a high concentration of the Adventists who, who have historically, to some degree or another, um, read or at least known of the principles of health that were taught a hundred years ago. The Adventists they studied in the, in the research concluded that they lived an average of 10.8 years longer than their people in the society around them, 10.8 years longer. That's a pretty significant for a significant difference. And so the National Geographic article looked at exploring some of the reasons why that may be true. And they talked about the strong community of faith. They talked about the health principles. They talked about not smoking and drinking. They talked about the, uh, the rest day also. That um, is one of the factors that they suggested might help these people to live longer. Um, living proof was the high number of centenarians in the study of people who were still living active, productive, healthy lives well past 100. And um, why? Because they had benefited from things written, I believe inspired by God, over 100 years ago. Now, that's something for all of us to test and prove for ourselves, isn't it? It's not something that I would want anyone to, to say, well, if, if Pastor Clark says that that she was inspired and God gave her messages, then she must have. No, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want you to do that. I would want you to benefit from those, um, those teachings if you can find them to fit the tests uh, that we've already spoken about. But this is what I do know. The Bible says in Second Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye what? prosper. And so whoever God chooses, and if he chooses additional people to have special messages in these last days in the future, he can do that, can't he? But whoever he chooses, we ought to follow him. We ought to, we ought to, we ought to test them and prove them. And if they're true, it's a true message from Jesus, then we're going to want to hear it, right? It's the testimony of Jesus Christ, actually, is what it says in Revelation, right? The Bible says in Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was angry with the woman, wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, who which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I like the way it's not called the spirit of prophecy in that verse. Later on, it calls it the spirit of prophecy, right? The gift of prophecy. But the way it says it here, it makes it very clear. This is Jesus speaking to us, right? And if it's, if it's Jesus speaking to me, I want to hear it. I think it's pretty clear, very clear, that this is a gift that is still expected to be a blessing to God's people in the last day. And I would just invite you to um, take special attention to this issue. There's great danger if we follow false prophets, but I think there's great blessing if we follow the messages that God brings to us 
And um, I want to encourage you to do that in your own life. Why don't we bow our heads as we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for this chance to explore again a teaching of the book of Revelation. We've looked at how your people in the last days are described, and they're described as keeping the commandments and having the testimony of Jesus. And we know that this is something for um, the whole world. It's something for all of your people everywhere. And we just pray that, that, we might, that we might do what you've commanded, that we might beware of false prophets, but we might not beware of all prophets, that we would not despise prophesyings, that we would test all things, that we'd prove all things, and we'd hold fast to that which is good. Lord, we thank you that you still love us, that you care for us, that you still give your people messages in these last days, messages that can make us happier and holier and healthier and help us to live better lives reflecting your character. I pray that you'd be with us tonight, that you'd be with each one of us. Lord, we're living, I believe, in these dangerous times when there are false prophets, and I pray that we might, we might heed the warning and that we might receive the blessing. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.